It's Monday. January 7th, 2018. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 191 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thanks for joining us for another conversation between myself and another musician. Today, that musician is composer and band leader Darcy James Argue. Let's have a listen. That's uh, some quite noirish music, wouldn't you agree? Darcy James Argue's on the show today. And uh, let me start by saying to all of you, Happy New Year. Uh, I hope you guys had a good New Year's Eve. I hope so far 2019 has turned out to be okay for you. It's got to be better than last year, right? I want to say thanks to everyone who has been contributing to the Patreon. Uh, As I think most of you know at this point, the Patreon platform is how we keep this show a listener-supported show. If you go to patreon.com slash 5049podcast, you can pledge to become a monthly donor. At any amount. Uh, And that's what pays to keep this show up and going. And as uh, a special thank you to those of you that that sign up and become patrons, you will get immediate access to the entire archive of this podcast, which at this point is over 90 episodes. Uh, The most recent 100 episodes will always be available for free in iTunes uh, and at the website. But if you want to check out the first 90-plus episodes, go to Patreon and become a donor. Again, it's patreon.com slash 5049podcast. The list of of conversations and of musicians that that are in that archive is is huge. Uh, It's vast. There's a lot of good stuff in there. So so please consider doing that. Also, if you're enjoying the show, please rate and review it in iTunes. That helps tremendously. You want to help out, but maybe uh, you know you can't do the Patreon thing. Consider doing the iTunes thing because uh, it it really helps. All right, uh, Darcy James Argue. Do you guys know him? I imagine some of you do. He's originally from Vancouver. Uh, he studied at the New England Conservatory with Bob Brookmeyer, uh, and then moved to New York in the early two thousands. He's been here since uh, two thousand three, and. I'd actually never met Darcy before this conversation. Um, I'd certainly been aware of him for a long time. He has a band called uh, Secret Society. Darcy James argues Secret Society. They put a record out in 2009 called Infernal Machines, and it, it kind of blew up. Uh, it was, you know, it was nominated for a Grammy. You know, it became all of a sudden, you know, I had never heard of him. And then all of a sudden, you know, he was just everywhere. Uh, and it's incredibly ambitious music. Something that I was always curious about with Darcy is, in his time in New York, has focused exclusively on this project as his creative output. This large ensemble that does his um, compositions and arrangements, uh, all big band music. But I, until this conversation, was unclear whether or not Darcy uh, was a player at all, you know. Every, pretty much everyone you know in New York um, does multiple things. You know, they write, uh, they improvise, they they play. Uh, you know, to varying degrees. Uh, and I was curious to talk to Darcy about that, about whether or not you know he is out there pursuing that aspect of music making. And we talk about that a good bit today. Uh, he's a very focused composer and band leader. 
uh, very meticulous output that he's, he's done so far. And he, at this point, Secret Society has put out a number of records. They've done a number of tours, you know. Uh, I, we, I, I mentioned it on the show today. You know, keeping a three-piece band together is hard enough. Imagine doing it with 18 musicians. Uh, he's a very focused and driven guy, and I was curious to find out about him. I'm putting the show up today because this weekend, Friday and Saturday, January 11th and 12th, 2019, Darcy's bringing his band, The Secret Society, uh, to the Jazz Gallery for two sets each night. 7.30 and 9.30, both January 11th and 12th, 2019, at the Jazz Gallery. Jazz Gallery is located at 1160 Broadway, Manhattan, Midtown. Uh, go to the website for the Jazz Gallery and uh, scoop up some tickets. Should be a good show, or good series of shows. If you want to find out more about Darcy, you're going to want to go to secretsocietymusic.org. He keeps a uh, pretty up-to-date blog there. There's tour dates. You can listen to all the records. Uh, and, and check them out this weekend, January 11th and 12th at the Jazz Gallery in New York. All right. Happy New Year, everyone. I uh, hope you guys are doing well. Here's my conversation with Darcy James Argue. Things like they make it harder and harder to just like get a workflow and keep it going to the point of just being totally maddening. Yeah, I mean the the eyelash situation is bad. Yeah, I mean that, and that's like the the tip of the iceberg. They, uh, it's so funny, like having computers, whether you're using like Sibelius or Pro Tools or whatever it is. These again, these things that offer like unlimited possibility if you kind of kind of get in and learn the language that very thing of of like protecting their proprietary you know software it 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 just like it it's jarring how quickly it can like get in there and mess you up (laughs) i feel like you spend a lot of time perhaps in sibelius or finale or one of those things yeah the finale copy protection regime is really not that onerous it's just like an online registration thing it's pretty easy sure it's yeah i don't I don't spend any time thinking about it. But um, does the I unlike mean, unlike Pro Tools, <laughs> right? Yeah. But the beach ball, like I have to imagine the beach balls. Uh... Uh, you know, I mean there are crashes. There's like every every music creation software has its its you know instability and uh, its music notation is pretty complicated. And mm-hmm. uh, Finale has been around since the mid '80s, and you can still like open a file that was created in version like finale 1.0 they're up to version 26 right so like that's um a heavy amount of uh of technological debt um going going in going back all that ways and there's a lot of things in the program that you know have to accommodate uh, a very slow evolution but you get to the point as a composer that you're not really spending too much time um, worrying about your tools, at least most of the time. You know, sometimes you get hung up on one little thing, but for most, for the most part, um, I'm working pretty fast. Yeah. Um, and uh, music notation is certainly better than writing it all up by hand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When, when you were a kid uh, at the piano, um, how, how if, if you can remember, how quickly did you sort of start putting notes together 
in in some way that would resemble a composition. I guess I always kind of messed around with it yeah. uh, a little bit, and um, you know, in in high school uh, when I uh, joined the jazz band first on trumpet and then switched over to piano, uh, and then kind of started to learn about chord symbols and uh, playing charts off of a, a lead sheet. Um, I had a piano teacher back in Vancouver who was really into um, stride piano, so I mm-hmm. kind of learned playing stride piano and uh, uh, what he called lock hand, which is really just sort of like George Shearing style block chords. And uh, he would play electric bass, and then you would play like the the harmonized um, melody, the sort of the, like the lock hand shearing style. How, how exactly melody. does lock hand work? It's just so you you you're just playing a, a thickened line. So you're playing a melody, and then you're harmonizing it, like you know, and then doubling the the melody in your uh, left hand. So like I guess the the lock hand is kind of kind of looks like you can't see but it kind of you know your hands mirror each other mm-hmm. it's the same kind of writing you would have for a saxophone solely in a, right. a big band chart um but it also uh, applies to to piano so uh, i guess it was useful to have that background once once i started to actually write sax solis uh because you know i kind of already knew how to do that uh through through this this is not i don't think the the typical way people learn to play jazz piano, but mm-hmm. I had someone who was just like really. Uh, we learned on standards, and he would just give me a lead sheet, and um, you know, I would learn to play a stride version of it, or I would learn to play like a, a locked hands version of it. But in the jazz band, you were playing trumpet or piano. I started playing uh, trumpet, and then I switched over to piano when I realized that uh, I was bad <laughs> at trumpet. <laughs> but how much of you being quote unquote bad at trumpet? Like, were you frustrated by the transposing uh, aspect of it, or no? That's not hard. Yeah, no, it's just a physical. Uh, ability, you know, like the chops and struggling with um, sound production and range and endurance and all that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, it was, but okay. So you 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 said to yourself, "I'm not very good at trumpet. I'm going to play piano." Yeah. Was that heartbreaking in any way, or it was just no. very matter of fact? No. I mean, I still continued to uh, play trumpet in the concert band right up until um, the end of high school, mm-hmm. and that was. Because uh, you had to, you weren't allowed to be in the jazz band uh, if you weren't also in the concert band. Um, but that was, you know, again, it's it's useful to have those musical experiences where uh, you are not the best musician in the group. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Know. Actually, uh, a friend of mine who is, you know, a pretty incredible composer and musician said something to me the other day uh, about if you're the, his exact words were, if you're the best cat in the band, you're in the wrong band. Sure. Yeah. It's always true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, most of the time. But did you, uh, like, were you at that time, how much of what you were working on was uh, based on improvisation and how much of it was, you know, learning, you know, musical structures and, and, and performing with an ensemble? Well, yeah. So in the, you know, in the um, high school jazz band, you know, the opportunity to take solos. And uh, we had a small group, so I was also writing uh, original music and writing arrangements for the small group to play and, you know, uh, blowing there and just kind of, you know, messing around after school uh, in the music room with whoever's around, uh, yeah. playing, you know, playing tunes and trying to figure stuff out. And, you know, there were summer programs and whatnot. And then 
Well, I think it's a, it's kind of a fairly fairly common uh, background. Yeah. Um, just to uh, when you when you start learning to uh, to have a little bit of uh, facility at improvisation, um, you know, often there's only like two or three other people in your high school that that do that and are into that, and so you kind of you know look for opportunities to mm-hmm. meet um, other kids your age who are really into like checking out records and transcribing solos and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. and, and playing together. But and when you were playing, whether it's with these you know these these, these peers or in the larger group, um, like would you look forward to the the prospect of soloing? Or sure, but, of course, yeah. I mean, yeah? everyone does. I don't know. I think it's kind of horrifying for some people. Well, I mean, I think that those people don't tend to go on and uh, to careers in jazz. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Um, were you a jazz fan at the time? Were you, were sure, you yeah, actively listening to the music? And I mean, you can't. Uh, you can't play if you're not a serious listener. It's like picking up a language. Right? Yeah. So certainly, you know, you get um, at the uh, sort of summer jazz programs, people give you a list of records to go and check out. And of course, this is all pre-internet. Um, so uh, and for the most part, it was uh, a lot of it was pre-CD. I don't think I had. A, how how a, old are you? You were born. I'm 43. OK, so this so, we're talking like early 90s. Like late eighties, okay. uh, early nineties. So uh, I don't think I had a, a disc man until my senior year of high school. So you you have like your Walkman and you're looking for tapes. And uh, there's like the one of the Canadian story Canadian record chains is called Sam the Record Man. So uh-huh. you'd, like go through and try to try to find like you know can you get any Wayne Shorter uh, Blue Note records on cassette. Uh, and a lot of them, you know, yeah. like it's, it was slim pickings, but yeah, you would get what you could. Yeah, I mean, I, my mem- when I f- was first getting really interested in jazz, and again, we're talking about, you know, I mean, it was already the CD era, but I, when I was really getting interested in like pretty obscure free jazz, I would find the college radio stations that would play it, and I would right. just tape it. Yeah, yeah. So certainly there was there was a lot of that. That's where I first heard um, Jack Johnson, uh, the, the Miles Davis fusion record. That's, yeah, that's something that made a big. Um, impact on me because that was the first fusion record that really had like loud guitars you know like Bitches Brew is a little bit kind of still um, McLaughlin is kind of still figuring out his tone and uh-huh. it's more of uh, sort of this impressionistic thing Yeah, uh, and then like from that opening groove on Jack Johnson you know it's just full on right away it's I mean, incredible like night driving music to me Bitches Brew and it can t- it's still a record that like I go back to with some frequency and it's very important to me to me that's like a studio record uh, you know it's, it's much more conceptual where like I listen to Jack Johnson and to me it's about a band being like getting out there and having like no uh, uh, like self-aware, like just getting up and fucking kicking ass. Sure, I mean it's still a studio uh, production, but it's definitely, you know, it's a it's a pretty dramatic break. Yeah. I feel like from everything that that came before and all the sort of improvisational textures and kind of collage like um, approach uh, and and kind of the the atmosphere of of bitches brew. Um, and with Jack Johnson, it's really like about, um, groove and kind of digging in and like this incredible shuffle groove and, and like long solos and miles kind of just the trumpet playing on that record is incredible too. He's just at the top of his form. Yeah. 
But so what? So the the list of records that you were given that was sort of like a curriculum. Like, what do you remember? What stuff was on it? I mean, the same stuff that that everyone always tells you. So, like, um, kind of blue, and then um, Mingus Ah Um, and okay. uh, uh tenor madness and blue train and giant steps and and there was nothing know. before that there wasn't uh bird or sure although, but those, or... well uh, but like the that's before the lp era right so i had a a, a bird uh uh compilation of um stuff that he did with miles um that was again on cassette mm-hmm. uh and um those were like forget if they were originally clef or savoy but it was you know it was like a good um selection of that stuff and then like the um you know in terms of the history of the music um that was really you know like i didn't really learn about early ellington in any kind of systematic way until i got to college and started taking taking uh jazz history classes in a systematic way what do you mean by that well, I mean, I had Ellington records, but I didn't like. I didn't know about the different stages of Duke's career. I didn't know about like the Blanton Webster band being one phase of it, and you know the, um, you know the the sort of personnel changes over the years, and the the sort of Newport revival, all of that sort sure. of career landmark stuff is stuff that you get taught, right. Right, but I mean, with with let's say just as like a point of reference with the other people that you know you mentioned. Giant Steps, you mentioned Kind of Blue, you know, with Coltrane, with Miles, you know, you could certainly, you know, put on two records, one from 1965 and one from 1959, and hear two radically different things. Uh, I mean, did you have an awareness of artistic trajectory being something that radical? Um, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Uh, I mean, if I if I understand what you're saying by, like, the... the, the systematic nature of duke's music are you talking about i'm not talking about a systematic nature of the music i'm talking about like a systematic approach to understanding someone's career you know uh this is again before the internet um so you're kind of out there on your lonesome and you know you might pick up a a random duke ellington cassette from the bargain bin and not have any understanding of so uh, where does this fit into his sure. career narrative? But I mean, couldn't something similar be said for if you, again, you're you're kind of in your own vacuum because your own bubble because there's, you know, there's not the internet uh, and you're mm-hmm. a high school kid. If you pick up interstellar space, you know, because you really enjoyed Blue Train, might, might not there be like a similar cognitive dissonance? Uh, yeah, but, you, you know, you might have had hipper people around you if they were saying hey man you should really check out interstellar space (laughs) you know like with with at least with the ellington stuff it was less about recommendations and more about kind of what's available yeah uh particularly the early stuff like you know pre-lp um you're at the mercy of whoever puts together the compilations if it's music from the 78 era right and so that that stuff doesn't really start to get systematically collected um, until like the the early '90s and kind of the the like real CD, even the mid '90s. You know, there's like I don't think um, such sweet thunder made it to to disc until like '97, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only way to hear that was on vinyl. Um, so there was a lot of that. Mm-hmm. So. 
but so going back to your original point, were you hearing things like that were very, you'd buy one or two things and you would hear things that seemed at odds with each other or what was the, well, you just didn't have any context. Like, you know, again, you don't have, um, Unless you went out and bought a, a Duke Ellington biography, mm-hmm. uh, you didn't really know. Well, where does this fit in? Like, what sure. what is happening here? What what is happening? Even like what is happening in the world? What is happening? In the, you're you're you know piecing together a jigsaw puzzle from all of these like random disconnected parts, and it's not until you you have the opportunity to sit down and have a you know a, a sort of history class that that everything hopefully you know like you have a frame to put it all in. Yeah. So did you, do you remember a specific feeling of trying to reconcile hearing or it was just, it was, you didn't know that there was this trajectory. Um, I mean, you know that there is, but you just like that information was much more difficult to access. Sure. Um, So this this was in high school, yes, yeah, um, and you at that point were pretty certain that you were going to be continuing to play to play music after high school, yes, and you went to where did you go after there? Uh, I went to McGill in Montreal. Okay, so I studied uh, jazz piano there for four years. And the cons- and what you saw for yourself was a continued career as a performer at the time, yeah, yeah. And when did that begin to shift? That shifted when um, I got an invitation from Bob Brookmeyer to study with him at New England Conservatory. Um, And, you know, Bob had been for a long time one of my compositional heroes. And, you know, he's someone who, you know, you talked about trajectory. Well, I mean, Bob was born in 1929 and, Uh and... saw and was alive for a large part of recorded jazz history and especially coming up uh, out of Kansas City um, you know was in touch with that style that sort of midwestern swing style from the beginning like that was his lingua franca Uh, and he talks about when he first heard the Count Basie band when he was 10 years old and how they gave him his first full body thrill. Um, that was the, the term he used? Yes. Yeah. So having the opportunity to connect with, with someone whose whose roots go that deep, that was that was definitely new for, for me. And um, Bob was someone who took teaching very seriously, and that's not always the case for musicians uh at that level Mm -hmm. um but he uh he really wanted to pass on what he had learned he 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 recognized the value of his experience and access with that tradition yeah i think so how did his invitation to you come about well i had um corresponded with him he had you know he had his email address up on his website in that um in the late 90s was still pretty unusual yeah you know i think there's a lot of cultural shifts um and we talked about cultural shifts around access to information and access to recordings and like literally having every recording ever made at your fingertips practically uh and another thing is having all of your 
idols uh, available to you on social media. Mm-hmm. And that's not uh, that's not the world that I grew up in. Right. And so um, being able to reach out to Bob because I was um, after graduating from McGill, I started teaching arranging there um, the year after I graduated. And so um, teaching some of Bob's music, you know, you have questions and it's like well i can actually just on the email machine mm-hmm. <laughs> write to bob and ask him you know and this is new and so i did and we started up a little bit of a correspondence and then at one point he suggested well why don't you send me some of your music because um, you'd been writing stuff at that point yeah uh so i um put it all in a, in a in a big envelope and and mailed it to his place in New Hampshire and you know time passed and uh Bob took the time to listen and then said you know this is actually you know there's something here why don't you come and study with me and I had had um you know things had started to uh go pretty well for me in Montreal so I figured um that I would probably be in Montreal uh, on that scene things were going uh, well for, in in what way well, I had a band, and we had some gigs, and uh-huh. we played the Montreal Jazz Festival, and won some awards, and that kind of stuff. And what was the band? Uh, it was a quintet. You were a quintet? Yeah. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, that kind of invitation from, from Bob uh, threw a monkey wrench into yeah. those plans, because that's that's sort of not an invitation that you turn down. Right. Right. So, immediately, you, you made the decision. Yes. Yeah. How old were you? Um, I guess I would have been 23. Yeah, 23. Okay, okay so still quite young. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, you know, something you said a minute ago was, you know, so growing up in Vancouver, you know, if you grow up in New York, like, yeah. you see pretty quickly that there is actually, and this is completely separate from social media and all that stuff, there is access to right. to the greats like they're actually around and yeah. you know you can go to you know i remember going to sweet basil and seeing um uh bah, 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 you know sonny simmons play for seven people with rashid ali you know like it was you know you can just go up and say hi so were you excited by the prospect of getting closer to a place where these people were accessible sure i mean that uh certainly uh one of the the great joys of, of NEC was uh, being able to um, study not just with Bob, but to take classes with George Russell, uh-huh. um, who was there at the time uh, teaching his Lydian chromatic concept. And, you know, George's um, uh, faculties were, were not quite 100% when I was there. How old was he at that but time? But he was, um, I, I don't know, but his... Uh, you know, he had he had some, uh, you know, some some degeneration okay. uh, in his later years, and it was definitely in his later years. But um, it was uh, still just thrilling to to play in that band and to mm-hmm. play like stuff like uh, Time Spiral and and like very little known music. And and George's music still is is not uh, as well uh, known or as understood as it should be. I mean, people know about the the Lydian chromatic concept, and they might know about like um, Concerto for Billy the Kid, or they might know about um, uh, Stratus Funk. But 
but he still is just, you know, he's got such an incredible uh, depth of, of music um, into the 70s and 80s and all kinds of, of, of really brilliant um, music throughout his career. Um, and, you know, it was a, a thrill just to kind of be around him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were great saxophonists there. Um, Jerry Berganzi was there. And, um, you know, to take a, you know, an improv class with, uh, with Berganzi and, um, you know, the George Garzone and the Fringe were playing every Monday night. And that was, uh, always, always a kind of an amazing experience. So you'd be able to see see these people in the classroom environment, but then go see them on the bandstand as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and also uh, Lee Hyla, who was my orchestration teacher, is a really amazing composer. And, I was just listening to him yesterday. Uh, and John Heiss, who is mm-hmm. sort of a, an assistant to Robert Kraft and Stravinsky uh, and had all kinds of great stories and was a really amazing, uh, amazing teacher. Um, so it was a real immersive uh, yeah. environment with a, a faculty that... Uh, you know, was was not bullshit. Was Jimmy Jufri around at that time too? No, uh, Steve Lacey came in in my second year, and I got to perform with Steve. Um, so that was amazing. What was that like? Yeah. Uh, you know, he's, he's Steve Lacey. So yeah, <laughs> it was uh, it was tr- it was some of his uh, vocal music. You know, his own um, some of his own lyrics, and then some uh, uh, poetry set to lyrics and. Um, and so there were several singers and kind of support, trying to support them and listen to, to Steve and get the right vibe for the, the story that he was trying to tell, the story that the poems were evoking. Um, that was all pretty new to me, um, and that was a really uh, special experience. Had you familiarity with his music before that? A little. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, I, it, it grew uh, as I got a chance to um, hear him more and see him more. Um, but yeah, you know, he's also one of those very um, idiosyncratic and sure. very personal musicians that um, NEC tends to attract. Of course, Rand Blake uh, was there, and I took Rand's film noir class, his uh, infamous film noir class, and actually worked as as an assistant to Rand. Uh, infamous? Yeah, uh, you know, have you ever met Rand or have you I've heard any stories Rand. about him? He's he's a a really interesting guy. Yeah, and he is. Um, his mind uh, works in sort of parallel tracks, like very quickly, but like about, it's sort of like there might be seven different conversations going on in his head simultaneously, and then his head will like switch from one to the other to the other, and you just kind of have to keep up. Just figure out how to engage with that, right? Yeah. Um, But, uh, you know, he's also just such a a very, um, you know, the, the, the depth of his... Um, connection to the music. You know, he's someone who moved to New York um, specifically to try to get close to Thelonious Monk and mm-hmm. offered to babysit his children, which was maybe not a great experience for his children, but was great for <laughs> Ran. Um, and, you know, he's he's uh, an utterly unique uh, musician. And yeah. Someone who, like, no one sounds like him still. And uh, hearing him... He uh, started the Yoda of NEC, you know? Right. And and hearing him perform uh, one of his uh, film noir-inspired concerts mm-hmm. uh, uh, was is really something. And, and seeing, you know, the, there's a few films that, that he keeps returning to. One of them is uh, Dr. Mabusa, uh, the German expressionist uh-huh. film. And, and just, you know, hearing him talk about that and 
um, it, it, there's like there's a real um, ongoing connection to um, to other art forms that uh, that Rand has, yeah. But particularly film that I think is is unique in jazz. And and you got that from him, yeah. Were you already a, a fan of film? Uh, yeah, you know, uh, there there were some good art house cinemas in Montreal. So, sure. I mean, I didn't have a TV, so that was that was what I would do: uh, is go to, um, you know, Cinema de Paris or Cinema du Parc to to watch uh, whatever whatever they uh, managed to bring in um, that week, whether it was like a, you know, a, a Truffaut film mm -hmm. or whether it was, um, you know, uh, an obscure Orson Welles picture or. Uh, whether it was, uh, you know, uh, uh, Kurosawa or, or, or whatever they happened to, to have that week. It was just, well, you know, this seems interesting. Let yeah. me check that out. Yeah, I'm, I'm playing catch up with a lot of that stuff now. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, do you think you had, like, an awareness of the importance? I mean, you, you just mentioned Orson Welles, Truffaut, and Kurosawa. Those mm -hmm. are, like, three of the heaviest cats ever. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the nice thing about having a well-programmed uh, art house cinema in your neighborhood is it makes it easy to to educate yourself yeah and to to see all of this uh these classic films which are still you know um i feel like that's maybe one of the casualties of the the streaming era for film is, yeah. you know music you've got um so much access but for film it can be a little tricky and if it's somehow if it's not on netflix it doesn't exist for a lot of people well you need to learn how to that's one thing you know i the conversation of what's lost with the digital age you know it's like not that compelling to have or listen to all the time but one thing i will say that i hope people who as you can see i don't rely too heavily on <laughs> on digital shit but for people that do people that don't know anything else like i hope they're developing some sort of personal curatorial system because right. if you rely exclusively on what's available through the, the the primary channels you are dealing with like the tj maxx of right. of 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 media it is 97 percent shit and if you look hard enough you'll find something but there is no connectivity there is no sense of context there is no sense of 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 watching things in order and understanding how things have influenced one another right. uh so i i actually feel bad for people that young people that don't know how to sort of approach things they don't have that that thing like i, I hope right. they find it somewhere or yeah. that it's being taught you know um my filmstruck uh subscription just ended as it did for everyone right. uh, and yeah it's anyway anyway but yeah to have a curator to have someone who's act you know like a the the theater you're talking about yeah and then um Rand's class was was great too because there's so many things um that uh, I never would have seen if it were not for for Ran or things that that I would have seen, but seeing them for the first time with Ran is is an interesting experience too, because he's also in the class, sort of zooming around and fast forwarding and kind of dropping the needle, and you don't get to watch the film in its entirety. You get to see like <laughs> right. just little scenes here and there, and if you uh, are sufficiently interested, you can kind of go back and, and watch the whole thing in order, which is what happened with the Manchurian Candidate. Oh, it's like you just kind of it was sort of like drop the needle on certain scenes, um, including the the wonderful 360 degree reveal shot uh -huh. and other things. And then I remember like going out right away and trying to going around to all the video stores and, and trying to find a DVD of uh, the Manchurian Candidate so that I could actually watch it from 
beginning to end right. figure out what's going on. Right, right. Did you guys deal with a third man at all in that class? Not in that class, but I, that's another one that I'd, I'd seen a few times at Cinema de Pauk, and, you know, what a great film. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, you know, whatever. It's it's not that, uh, you know, the, musically, it's it's something to pay attention to for certain. Yeah. Anyway, it's something that I, I, I talk about um, actually with my students is um, the the introduction of, of Wells's character, the introduction of the sort of the, re- the reveal of Harry Lyme in that film is something that is like the groundwork for that reveal is, is laid so patiently and then it pays off so incredibly yeah. well with like the cat and the bowl of milk and the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the sudden light from the, from the window. And, um, that's that process of laying the groundwork for a dramatic moment like that is definitely something that every composer um, should study. Yeah. So that's that's a, a film that I, I often make my students see. It's funny. I'm looking to film so much more these days for for cues and inspiration than music. And it's just, you know, it's, it's not it's not a, an, an intentional thing. It's just happening that way. I'm kind of diving more in. So when you go from you would so say you you finish McGill. You have a band that's working. You're playing the Montreal Jazz Festival. Uh, you know, seemingly things are rolling, and then you put that on hold to go study in Boston with Bob Brookmeyer. Was there a sense of uh, like, like, was it, was it, like, did it seem vacation like at all to like be able to put work aside and go back to just studying music? Uh, no, it was not vacation like. <laughs> yeah. I was. Writing an enormous amount of music because yeah. we had, um, you know, a, a, a big band that met uh, every week and performed student compositions, and so you were constantly trying to write something to be to be read that week. You know, you had weekly access to to a big band, which is not something that I I'd, I'd ever had before, and I knew it was something that I would never have again. So um, that was certainly the big uh, focus of, of my time down there was trying to um, write as much big band music as possible. And that wasn't something that hadn't been my goal mm-hmm. going in. It wasn't, even no. though you'd been teaching arrangement back at uh, yeah, Gale? Yeah, but um, I had, um, you know, I sort of planned on continuing a career as, as a pianist and as you know, writing for small groups, you know, for writing sort of for the, the two horn quintet that I had been writing for. Um, but there was this wonderful opportunity to really kind of dive into the beak, the deep end on mm-hmm. um, big band composition, um, particularly with a, a master like Bob. So I did that for, for two years and then, uh, uh, I picked up the habit, and it was hard to quit. To be able to have that that range of color and expressivity mm-hmm. as a composer, yeah, yeah, that's a uh, it's it's a pretty daunting endeavor to <laughs> have that be your primary uh, form of expression. Well, it'll ruin your life because it'll ruin your life. It's a such a totally unreasonable way to make music, and yes, yeah. um, you know. Uh, requires an enormous amount of compositional time, mm-hmm. and then 
uh, an enormous amount of uh, sort of logistical time just in like printing and taping parts and uh, organizing in the folders and organizing rehearsals and it's just, hard enough to keep a trio together right so everything kind of just gets exponentially harder when you when you deal with large forces like that so it's something that you should definitely never do unless <laughs> you know unless you just can't help yourself right right I mean, but as you were you know delving into this at NEC with Bob and you have you had access to this large group I mean did you know like did you say to yourself oh fuck like I don't think I can go back to a quintet I mean, not in so many words, but um, it definitely, you know, I, I uh, spent, after graduating. You graduated with a master's degree, right? Yeah. So I spent a year uh, going back and forth from Boston to New York to come into here to do the um, BMI Jazz Composers Workshop, which um, Jim McNeely and Michael LeBenny were directing and, you know, so I'd uh, hop on uh, a bus in Chinatown in, in Boston and then they would drive um, very, very quickly down mm-hmm. to Chinatown in New York for about 10 bucks. Mm-hmm. And uh, I sort of spend the day uh, in New York, um, you know, catching up with some friends, maybe having a cup of coffee and then going up to the BMI uh, offices for the um, for the classroom sessions, or there would be reading sessions at the uh, at local eight hundred two once a month, and it was a great opportunity to hear other composers who um, had not studied with Brookmeyer and had a different perspective mm-hmm. on on music, uh, and it was also an opportunity to to say, okay, well, some of these people uh, they've got they've got big bands of their own in New York. Um, and they they seem to they keep showing up every week like you know they they don't seem to be visibly homeless mm-hmm. and so there's like some some way they're found some way to make it work and you're talking um, about the band leaders not the... the well the other participants in the workshop right? right so like a lot of the other participants in the workshop were well it, it's it's a workshop for um for young composers primarily who have uh, completed their studies but are are looking to develop um, once they're outside of academia. Well, just real quick, something you mentioned just a second mm-hmm. ago was the local 802, and for those of... For those who don't know what that is, that's the New York Musicians Union. Right. Um, so were you looking specifically to a musicians union as a... That's just where the rehearsals took okay. place. Yeah, that's where the, the BMI reading sessions took place. But there were uh, a lot of musicians who were involved in those reading sessions who were uh, incredible musicians. I think um, for a while, John Hollenbeck was the drummer uh, in that group. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and there, there were just you know um, so many really extraordinary uh, New York musicians who were really into um, playing challenging contemporary big band music mm-hmm. for the love of it. Yeah, uh, and so that is not a situation that is available to composers in most cities. Mm-hmm. And so that really was the. Uh, the deciding factor uh, when after about a year of doing this, I figured, well, it's time to time to pull the plug and move here and try and make a go of it. Of yeah, with the specific goal of writing for a large group of starting a big uh, starting a big band. Yeah. yeah. So when you what you, so you got here in two thousand three, you said yeah. And did you spend much time at all as a player interacting with other players? 
no, I, I, I stopped. I knew I would have to stop. Um, you know, when I, when I moved here with the goal of starting a big band, I knew that um, it would be impossible for me to, uh, to try to also uh, establish a career as a, as a piano player. That just I mean, it was going to be one or the other. Right. But what about for the sake of, of having that musical interaction, having that relationship with, with people? You, you, that was just something you, you knew you would sacrifice or wasn't something you thought about? Yeah, I mean, you don't do it if you're not serious. And I, I knew that I just, um, uh, there were not enough hours in the day. Yeah. You know, uh, I was trying to start a band and that was going to be my focus. And I wanted people to know me um, as a composer uh, and a band leader. Uh, and um, so in order to make that happen, I had to sort of put my my dreams of of being a, a performing pianist uh on the you know on the you know on the permanent back burner uh you know um some people are able to to do both uh-huh. um but it's it's very challenging it's very very difficult to um keep up a an intense practice regimen sure. when you're also trying to uh, write all this big band music and you're also trying to pay the rent somehow yeah i mean i you know i don't you know doing big band music is not something that i have an interest in necessarily personally but i just i have a hard time imagining myself like establishing trust without having a player player relationship no you establish trust with um your ability to write in a way that um someone can look at it and can pretty quickly suss out whether you know what you're doing and whether you kind of have a player's mindset or not. Mm-hmm. And having you know, having been a rhythm section player, having been a piano player, like I have an idea of what rhythm section players want to see and need to see and like what is gonna be necessary for the music and what is going to be unhelpful you know sure um so establishing establishing trust happens through the 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 notes on the page and also your ability to um stand up there in front of the band and and conduct it and give um useful feedback so you just said uh and and I, i know that you do conduct your own group yeah um when did you begin to look at conducting as something you knew you'd have to to endeavor? Well, I mean, um, conducting I took, that's not that's not little kids play. No, and and I did take um, a conducting class at uh, New England Conservatory. It was like a wind conducting class because that's the one that's that's available to you, and that was that was helpful for like a basic primer on it. Um, and then for the the BMI workshop, uh, if you if your piece is selected to be performed at the concert at the end of the year, then you need to get up there and, and conduct it yourself. For the mm-hmm. reading sessions, uh, Jim would conduct it or Mike uh, Benny would conduct it. But like for the final concert, uh, you know you have to get up there and do it. And um, you know there's uh, eighteen musicians sort of staring you down staring you straight in the eye and waiting for you to to kind of give them um you know to give them that first downbeat and you know musicians are are very well specialized in um ignoring conductors when they're not helpful Mm -hmm. but i've also you know you look at 
um, someone who is an extraordinary conductor like Maria Schneider, for instance, or um, Bob Brookmeyer, you know, in, in his day as well. Um, and they are able to, like, really kind of carve out these little gestures in the air that make a huge difference to the emotional impact of the music and the way people play and the character that you know the, the subtleties and the detail and, and the shape of of the music and so you know that's um something that you have to really it takes a long time and just just through very careful watching and then mm-hmm. through through doing it and through trial and error and there's there's a lot of error and mm-hmm. uh, i you know i'm not um i've never been naturally gifted at at any area of of music really um any skill that i've acquired has has been uh, hard fought mm-hmm. always uh and that's definitely true of of conducting and uh i when i first started i really was not very good and uh i'm a little bit better now but when you first like, when you say you first started conducting is that was that in new york with the band that you were putting together uh also at uh, at nec for the, yeah. the 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 group the um jazz composers workshop group you know you would conduct the music uh you would conduct your piece um when it was performed in concert uh you would conduct during rehearsal and sure. all that stuff is you know it's uh it's very nerve-wracking yeah. um to try to command the attention of a room of your peers uh in college particularly uh and again you know there's um some some people uh you could you could see people try different approaches you know some people trying to be like little dictators and some people just kind of being um very loosey-goosey and unfocused and and you know you kind of sort of take mental notes and and kind of try to work out what what approach is going to work for for you and mm-hmm. what approach is going to get the the intent of the music across uh in a way that is going to draw the musicians in rather than cause them to get their backs up mm. so when you got to new york what were the first iterations of um like what what was the the first pieces you started putting together to have your own group doing your charts well i um i ended up um calling on the phone <laughs> back in the day when you would, speaking of daunting when you, when you would call people on the phone yeah um a lot of a lot of musicians that uh, you know i had uh i had gotten their their numbers from uh, musicians who were performing in the the BMI group, and uh, and from other uh, composers and band leaders in that group, and there was this like a list kind of of players who are are into that who mm-hmm. won't be pissed off if you cold call them and say, hey, you know, you've never met me, but um, I'm new in town, and I got your number from so and so, and I'm a composer, and um, I'm having a reading session of my music uh, at at the Union at Local 802 on such and such a date. Uh, the music is really, really hard, and I can't pay you. That's great. And great invitation. There's there's like a list of players who are like, yep, yeah, I'm down. I'm down with that. I actually, you know, I and they understand. It's it's not like it's not like you don't want to pay them, but right. Um, 
you know, in, especially if you're just starting out, you, you, you know, now I'm in a position where I can give people a little modest rehearsal honorarium. But, uh, you know, back in, in the day, you know, you really are relying on the uh, benevolence of other New York musicians and their, their interest in being challenged and their interest in, in playing music that is unusual and in developing their, their reading chops and in exposing themselves to, to whatever the, the next crazy generation of big band composers has come up with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you, I mean, and, and the group of people that you initially assembled, was it like a broad range of people or did you have like an idea of, of who you were going to populate your band with? Well, that took time, yeah. you know, um, for the reading sessions, it really was, you know, you're just, you're just grateful if you can get literally anyone, sure. um, at first. And then, um, over time you kind of figure out, okay, so like, here's the right mix of personalities for putting a band together. You know, I was, uh, I was lucky in that, um, Ingrid Jensen, who is a very, uh, well-known, uh, trumpet player and, mm-hmm. and she's uh, she's also from uh, Vancouver she's also from from British Columbia and so uh, I knew her sister from Montreal and I, I knew her um, a little bit and uh, you know she's someone who uh, I was able to call and, and have her come and do some of these sessions and then she also was the one who really kicked my ass and it's like now you got to get us a gig <laughs> And where was that first gig? I was at CB's, CB's, CB's Lounge. Yeah, in the basement. Yes. Yeah, CB's Lounge. And was that how did how did that feel to have your first gig at CB's? I, I love that. You know, I I had um, a dream at at some point of of having like you know a regular uh, Monday night gig there, sort of being like the CB's house big band. Yeah. Um, and uh, that didn't happen because uh, the club went uh, belly up very shortly after. So we're talking we started what, playing like 2004, 2005? Uh, 2005 and six. Yeah. So I think the last show there was, was in 2006, if I'm not mistaken. I think mistaken. it was like February 2006, yeah. something like that. I went to one of the last ones, but it was something like that. Yeah. Um, but that, that sort of gave us a, a springboard. So we played there, and we played most often across the street at the Bowery Poetry, Poetry Club. Club. That, was, that was kind of our, our primary musical home for the, the first few that years. That was of actually the band. a really good club for, for larger groups. Yeah, no, it was um, a great space. It was easy to fill the room enough that it felt full. Mm-hmm. The stage was big enough. Uh, the staff there was, you know, open enough to things happening. Yeah, no, it was, and uh, the saxophonist, uh, Stefan Zanuck, was programming it um, when I was there, and he was very supportive of the band. And Did he play we were, in your group also? No, no. Okay. But he was programming the, the venue, and, you know, it was it was easy, relatively easy to get people to come out and kind of build up uh, a bit of an audience, and that's where... Um, you know, Ben Ratliff, the New York Times critic, came in and, and wrote about us uh, for the first time, like before we had an album out or anything. So these are the first gigs of Secret yeah, Society. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's that's really where we learned how to play. And how often were you doing shows there? Uh, it was about, you know, um, once a month, once every couple of months okay. for the first little bit. Yeah. And and what did that early solidification process look like as the composer, band leader, organizer of, and, and everything else? Yeah, I mean, that's where uh, you 
had a chance to, you know, to, we developed our our book. I was writing new music all the time for this band and you know, organizing the rehearsals and um, uh, trying to um, work out the the personnel for the group and try to develop our our sound and develop our um, identity and, and figure out how. Uh, How figure out what I was going to do with this medium and what I was going to do with these specific musicians, mm-hmm. um, and so it you know um, there's there's nothing like uh, playing live to mm-hmm. to do that, and uh, so you know we we played from 2005, which was our first gig, through to like late 2008. You know, it was four years of that before we finally went into the recording studio. Yeah. I, mean, I think that made a big difference. I would say so. I would hope so. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and during that time, you were, you knew that, what, did you know that it was important to you to not be in a hurry, to really let the music kind of take shape over an extended period of time? I mean, it was also just, I couldn't afford to record. I mean, that was right. also of course. A, a big part of it. So uh, we did live uh, recordings, which was just, you know, I had my, my Zoom uh, stereo recorder. Sometimes uh, you get like a house feed from the, the mics up in mm-hmm. the loft of the, of the Bowery Poetry Club, or sometimes we would be lucky enough to play another club that, that had sort of like, you know, better house microphones. And I would just put up like every gig that we, that we did practically, I would put up the um, live audio of, of that gig um, up on our website for, for people to um, listen to. Mm-hmm. And it's funny um, how technology shapes that because, you know, uh, MySpace was kind of built around that idea yeah. of, of, of foregrounding music. And as the first social network, you know, like that, um, it, it was very, so like a very musician oriented network. Yeah, it was. Um, and so I think that, that and the, 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 the tools of the blogosphere, uh, cause we had a type pad web space, web website, um, made it easy to share music um, and to get some notoriety, notoriety mm-hmm. for yeah. the band uh, before we, we we made a record. And I was also I was taking advantage of the platform um, of MySpace to, specifically. Uh, well, actually, of of the the blog platform um, to write about music more generally. About the stuff that you were working on and then presenting a recording of, or I was actually writing about other shows that I would go to. So I would go to I would go to see like the new pornographers or TV on the radio, and I would take pictures and I would like write notes, and okay. then I would go like you know home and and stay up late to, and upload all of that stuff to um, to the blog and to try and and get it up there as quickly as possible and and. Um, just kind of make the 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 web presence a reflection of the music that I was seeing. Yeah, was that was your impulse to do that based more uh, in in just the satisfaction of doing it, and or, or or was it more like you saw that this was a way to sort of present your world of ideas? Yeah, it was it was a little of both. You uh-huh. know, um, I. I liked sort of um I liked the opportunity to go to my friends shows and write about them and take some pictures and and give them some promotion um and so that was 
um, and to document what I was seeing and hearing and, and, mm -hmm. and in some kind of like semi-organized way. Uh, and it was, you know, like there was a little moment, uh, um, you know, MySpace was a moment and like the, the blogosphere was a little bit of a moment. There's sort of a community of jazz blogs that were, um, you know, uh, had active commenters and sort of active interactions between the blogs and, you know, um, Ethan Iverson's, uh, blog for the bad plus, uh, also kind of emerged around that time. And it was just, uh, you know, there were there were fun things like you know I, I did one feature on like the four most tolerable uh, rock sax solos of all time. <laughs> okay, um, and uh, there was like a long thread about Miles's post nineteen seventy three electric work, and um, there you know there was uh, it was a more curated web experience because you know these blogs were all like you had the blog role and you would kind of have an rss feed that had you know all of these other sort of jazz related blogs or new music related blogs and there was a lot of kind of information being exchanged uh in a way that uh kind of now gets swamped by social media algorithms but right. at this time you know it was small enough the world of jazz blogs was small enough that you could just put it all in your rss reader and and kind of absorb it all but there was also uh my memory of that time of all different kind of uh, of websites like that was that there was actually in a lot of those places untoxic comment and conversation yes. sections yes uh they would get toxic you know with with Pretty pretty good frequency, but it was actually enthusiasts, right, going back and forth about what they thought about what was being discussed. Yeah. I mean, it's much less toxic than um, Twitter or right Facebook now, um, because it was you know they were real real communities, and if, if someone was was truly being an asshole, you could pretty easily just ban them. Yeah, um, but um, it also, um, yeah, it. It, it was a different way of interacting with, with other people online. And um, before you sort of had the critical mass of like, now everybody's uh, in the conversation. You had the, the people who like were interested enough in this slice of the musical universe to kind of curate their, an RSS feed that, that um, uh, gave them, access to this community and so like a lot of the people who leave comments had their own blogs and or they were like regular commenters and you would see them around at at, at um like a new music box or uh, mm -hmm. other spaces of that nature uh, and you you know a lot of actually some of those people i got to know in real life yeah <laughs> that happens sometimes yeah. Yeah. so you just to kind of put it all together you Finish McGill, start a path in Montreal, leave it to go to to Boston, study at, with Brookmire at NEC, and then go to New York and start the path of assembling a large band. You do these series of shows over a number of years. What was the defining moment to say, let's put this on a record and and go a step further? Well, you know, a number of things converged around the same time um i had uh some commissions uh coming in uh the jazz gallery uh started a large ensemble commissioning series mm -hmm. 
And so they commissioned uh, two pieces for um, uh, from me, and I knew that um, I had I had a few commissions from other sources, and um, that was not nearly enough money to record, but it was something. It was a chunk of of something that I wouldn't um, otherwise have. And the other thing was. Um, The, the record label uh, that I have been on um, all these years, New Amsterdam Records, they were just starting out. Yeah. And um, I uh, had a conversation with them uh, following this, this show we played, um, actually, at uh, Le Poisson Rouge back in mm-hmm. 2008. Uh, oh, sort of, right around the time that place opened. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it was one of the first. It was actually before they even officially opened it. It was like a summertime show there in the pre-launch period. Um, and, you know, we had a, a great conversation the next day about their model and everything. And I just, I felt really great about, um, the model of, of New Amsterdam. Yeah. Yeah. And I felt really great about the, the people involved and they were all, um, composers and individuals that I, Judd I really, Greenstein, yeah, Judd and, Nadia. uh, well, no, it, it's Judd and Sarah and Bill. Okay. Um, so Sarah Karkensteiner and, uh, Bill Bertel. Uh, and Judd Greenstein as the the three um, New Am co-founders. Right. So like we met in Judd's kitchen um, after the gig and and talked over some things and it just seemed like well this is you know um, this seems like there's some potential here uh, and then so we booked the the recording time and uh, went into the studio uh, just before Christmas uh, 2008 um, to over a couple of days to to make the record mm-hmm. and uh, and that. Uh, once that was out in the world, uh, all of a sudden, um, you know, all sorts of crazy things started to happen. It was nominated for a Grammy and mm-hmm. um, it got uh, an incredible amount of uh, critical acclaim. It was on, um, uh, uh, you know, it was featured on NPR and uh, it was on like a lot of the best of the year. Did uh, you see that lists. stuff coming? Oh, God, no. Right. No, I mean, uh, you know. I, I I hope that maybe it would sell like a, a couple hundred copies, and I might be able to use it to to get a gig at a jazz festival somewhere right. at some point. Um, but uh, it it definitely um, kickstarted the 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 band uh, and and my whole career onto a whole other trajectory. Right. But let me just ask you real quick: Had you made a record before that? No. So when you went into the studio with, with how many, 13, 14 musicians? 18. 18 musicians. Yeah. You didn't know how to make a record? No. Did you have someone there guiding you saying, let's go, uh, yeah, here's so, how you do a session? Or uh, I, um, One of my close friends from the, the BMI days uh, was this composer and bassist and band leader, Sharice Rogers. And uh, I learned a lot from from her music and her approach to big band composition. And she had asked me to produce her uh, debut recording mm-hmm. uh, at Systems 2. So, uh, and I didn't know how to produce a record, but um, kind of learned on the fly. And then, uh, you know, we sort of traded favors. And so Sharice produced uh, Infernal Machines. Okay. And, you know, and, and I had uh, had some conversations with some other... Uh, band leaders about how to do it, yeah, and some of the people in the band uh, about how to do it, and we had some 
some real veterans uh, in the in the studio, including um, Lori Frank, the trumpeter Lori Frank, great. who has been on like. I don't know how many thousands of even just big band recordings. Well, I mean, you know, let's just stop for a second. Lori Frank is, from what I know, I mean, she passed away, what, three years ago? Uh, I believe in 2013. 13. Yeah. She's one of the few, you know, musicians that everyone who plays the trumpet will talk about her with equal reverence. You're not going to hear anything but just the absolute most, you know, sense of praise. Yeah, and and Lori was one of those musicians who was just incredibly generous uh, with her time and always wanted to know what the younger generation of composers was coming up with. And you would see her, you know, she played uh, at the Bowery Poetry Club or Mm -hmm. at... um, the uh, the tea lounge in Park Slope, or you know these kinds of gigs where maybe she was making twenty bucks or something like mm-hmm. that, but she just really wanted to be part of the uh, the the community of composers and was just very very interested and very supportive. And so uh, having her on the session um, was a, a tremendous sort of stabilizing influence of just sure. someone who has has done this a million times and kind of knows about kind of the the psychology the ebb and flow of recording sessions and like when things get tense always has like a great joke to to disarm the tension and make everyone relaxed and laugh That's again huge. and all that yeah it really is and and did you when she when she would bring the, these aspects of of musical creation into the situation, were you immediately like appreciative and aware of what she was doing, or was it more of like a hindsight thing? No, no, it's it's uh, you know it's why I I asked her to do it. We had uh, sort of an absence in the trumpet section uh, yeah. because one of our regular trumpet players moved away. Uh, so when I thought about who could I ask, um, Lori was the natural choice. Not just because I knew you know she would nail it all musically, but just because she is such a. Um, an asset in the studio for that reason, for someone who is just like a real team player and someone who is just so quick-witted and, mm-hmm. and funny and and um, uh, someone who can kind of bring the right amount of of, of focus but levity to to a, a very stressful situation, sure. especially you know making a your very first big band record is. Um, uh, always a very stressful thing for for any band leader. Yeah, absolutely. Making a quartet record, you know. Did um, so when the record came out and it was getting this attention. I, I have to assume that's when the first opportunities to take the band outside of New York happened. Yeah, we went to Europe um, for the first time shortly after that, and you know played the Newport Jazz Festival, and like all of these doors started to open. I mean, being a band leader on the road. Again, even if it's a quartet, is yet another skill that people have to learn. And it's one of those things you only learn the hard way. Uh, did you know bringing 18 musicians over that you were going to have to learn yet another set of skills? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's terrifying. And then our, our first tour, um, which was to uh, the Netherlands and, and Germany, we were playing uh, the Merz Festival. Mm-hmm in Germany and uh the the day of our performance actually the night before there were notes slipped under everyone's hotel room door uh by German health authorities summoning everyone to this like 9am meeting what? in the hotel ballroom and uh so I had to make sure that that everyone 
read the note <laughs> and was on board. You know, people, it's, they're getting in at, at 3, 4 in the morning. And so, you know, you sort of have this, this system of, like, knock, 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 and, mm-hmm. you know, and keep keeping your out for your neighbor. And when you hear that door open, like, just check, make sure they see that because everyone had to be there. And what it was, uh, this was uh, at the very beginning of the swine flu epidemic. Oh, yeah. And someone on our flight had swine flu. And so um, they, in order to clear us to perform, the German health authorities sort of needed to do like a visual inspection of everyone in the band and to make sure, you know, their eyes weren't too bloodshot and they weren't coughing too hard or they didn't these look like... These are musicians. Like their eyes are always bloodshot. An upset stuff. Well, yeah. I mean, these mu- musicians who had been out drinking in Germany until <laughs> yeah. four in the morning the night before. And, you know, there had to be uh, some persuasion of like, I swear they don't have swine flu. They're just hungover. Uh-huh. Uh, and then uh, at the end of that, um, they, they cleared us all to perform, uh, and everything went great. Uh, and then I came back home and got swine flu. You got swine flu? I did. It was horrible. And then I actually had to perform a few days later. I took the band. Uh, we had a performance in Philly, our first performance in Philly, uh, right after we got back from Europe. Uh, and probably somewhere on, on one of the WBUR uh, is it WB? No, uh, what's the Philly uh, station? Um, the one that Fresh Air is on, anyway. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. They, BYO or something like that? Yeah. Um, so they, uh, they they came to tape uh, an interview with me. So there's, and, and they recorded the whole performance. But, um, you know, this interview that I'm doing, I just look like I'm about to die. Did you use, put on like a surgical mask or anything? <laughs> no. And, and and I I really did I don't know how exactly I made it through that performance but I had been like bedridden for days prior then like hopped in a car went to Philly conducted this thing did this interview hopped back in the car went back to New York and was bedridden for several more days. But swine flu. I've, you know I'm sorry I just got to stop for a second because my memory of when that was going down was like you get it you're gone. Um, yeah it's you know it uh it, it you know flu is is. You know, influenza can be very deadly, but you know, I was like young and, and healthy, so it just hurt a lot. It hurt. It was pretty miserable, uh, and uh, you know, but somehow I managed to summon the energy to to get out and do this gig and and get out of there. And uh, I believe I only infected one other person. Oh. I hope so. If if you uh, got swine food from me <laughs> back in two thousand and nine, I'm sorry. Yeah. Because it sucks. Yeah. So when you came back, I mean, aside from swine flu, did you did you feel like all right, my band is going now? Like you felt like you had a sense of momentum, or was it? I'm, yeah, I mean, things things kind of uh, began to pick up, but it's always very difficult. I mean, you know, most of the the festivals where we perform, you know, they're um, they're taking a significant loss um, bringing in a band of our size. I mean, yeah. we just would never be able to command. Um, uh, through ticket sales, the kinds of, of fees that that would pay airfare and, sure. and um, you know hotel and, uh, um, and ground transportation and all the rest and sure. the, even just the backline, you know. So we're very been very fortunate that we're we've been able to perform um, 
at uh, at places like Newport or the Chicago Jazz Festival, or uh, we played down in Brazil one year for the um, there, there was a BMW Jazz Festival down there, and you know those kinds of opportunities are uh, they only come through the artistic directors of those festivals being very. Um, uh, engaged in in the music uh-huh. and being willing to uh, go to extraordinary lengths to to make those performances happen for us um so that that never stops i mean you know even at the highest uh level um you know a big band is just an inherently incredibly expensive proposition sure. and so i uh, you know it's never going to be something where you can take it on the road for for three months straight Um, i mean is it ever um creatively frustrating for you to have this 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 mountain in front of you to express a creative idea you know as opposed if you have like a trio you know it's much easier to to have the you know the idea is much more uh, immediate in fruition yeah, and then you can tour for three months with a with a trio or or, right, or even small, just making yeah. the piece of music happen in the practice room. Right. Yeah, it's it's much more immediate. But you know, this is the these are the um, this is the bed that I made. Yeah. You know, and uh, the the upside is that musically there are things that you can express with a with a big band that you just can't express any other way. Sure. Um, and this is. This is sort of how I've chosen the, you know, this is the medium that I've chosen to work in. And, and it's always sort of attracted, you know, freaks and weirdos and nerds and, um, you know, people who are, are, are incredibly stubborn. And uh, I think that, that stubbornness has uh, been put to good use over mm-hmm. the years. <laughs> and have you been able to maintain like a steady core band? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a skill mm-hmm. of itself. So, right. So this weekend, you're doing a weekend-long residency at the Jazz Gallery, 11th and 12th. Yeah, January, Friday, uh, January 11th, Saturday, January 12th, where we're doing um, sort of a weekend at uh, at the Jazz Gallery, which uh, it's been, I think, 11 years since we started playing there. They've been a really incredibly supportive venue for us in New York. And this is new music? There will be uh, lots of unrecorded music, and then there will be you know, some music from, from our three albums, from, from Infernal Machines and Brooklyn Babylon and mm-hmm. uh, Real Enemies. And um, there's a piece that I wrote uh, just last year for Bob Brickmeyer. I was commissioned by my alma mater, commissioned by New England Conservatory to write something for Bob. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I wrote this uh, long feature for trombone and, and Barry Sachs, sort of in honor of the the Brookmeyer jerry Mulligan pairings of yeah. war uh, called Winged Beasts. So uh-huh. we'll be doing that. And, and uh, Who's playing trombone and Barry? Uh, so it's uh, Ryan Keberly on trombone and Carl Maragi on Barry Sachs. Okay. And you've been rehearsing it? Oh, yeah. And how's yeah. it going? Great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then do you, have, is there, do you have stuff on the horizon after the Jazz Gallery? Uh, yeah, although I don't know how much I can okay. talk about um, at this stage. You know, we've, we've done two big uh, multimedia projects. Mm-hmm. Um both of of uh, my my post debut recordings were born out of multimedia projects. Um, Brooklyn Babylon, uh, which was a piece, uh, a collaboration with a, a visual artist uh, and animator, Daniel Gigelia. 
and uh, Real Enemies, which was uh, a collaboration with writer-director Isaac Butler and uh, filmmaker Peter Negrini. And um, we are in the early stages of trying to um, fundraise and uh, get commissioned for a new multimedia project. Um, and uh, hopefully, you know, we're, we're optimistically hoping that we can get this in front of people in the fall of 2020. Um, these things take uh, a lot of time to to put together but uh i i hope uh, if it all comes together maybe i can come back and i'll tell you about it because <laughs> I, I i think it's it's going to be uh an interesting and and timely uh project it and, sounds like patience has uh, been a critical part of of your creative self-expression yes uh well you know uh sort of the the an, an impatient kind of of patience oh very good <laughs> well thanks for coming over darcy sure it's, good talking uh, to you, it's absolutely my pleasure and uh it was great to meet you and uh best of luck with all of your your uh podcasting all right thanks man thanks okay i hope that you guys enjoyed that that was me and darcy james argue as I said, he's a very focused and uh, driven and hardworking individual. If uh, you're around this weekend and you want to check him out, go down to the Jazz Gallery, January 11th and 12th. Should be good. Check out the website, secretsocietymusic.org. And uh, if you're enjoying this show, go to the Patreon, patreon.com slash 5049podcast. Do it up. Throw in a few bucks. It helps. All right, that's it. Uh, I hope you guys are cool. Talk to you next week. Bye.